Welcome to the e-commerce profitability show, a podcast by Link My Books. We speak with profitable e-commerce store owners and experts to help your e-commerce business become profitable because revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. I'm your host, Dan Little. Joining us today is Aaron Cordovez, the co-founder and CEO of Zuli Kitchen, a brand renowned for its meteoric rise to the top 100 sellers on Amazon. Aaron's journey in e-commerce is nothing short of inspirational. Starting as a coder, he ventured into Amazon selling as a side hustle in 2015, aiming to earn an extra $500 to $1,000 a month for his family. His deep understanding of data, algorithms, and consumer needs catapulted this side hustle into a massive success, selling over $200 million worth of products online. Beyond his role at Zuli Kitchen, Aaron is a prominent figure in the e-commerce community, providing select Amazon consultant and sharing his extensive knowledge through his website and the Aaron Cordovez show. His approach to e-commerce is holistic, combining innovative product development with efficient operational strategies. Aaron's insights into profitability, especially in the competitive Amazon marketplace, are invaluable for both new and established e-commerce entrepreneurs. With his pragmatic advice and proven track record, Aaron is a guiding light for anyone looking to succeed in the world of online sales. Aaron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Damn, that was the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thank you. You, your team. That was amazing. I approve. We could just end off here. That'll be perfect. Yeah, that was quite a mouthful. Quite a mouthful indeed. <laughs> Good thing for post-production. Eh? So to kick things off, could you share with us your core philosophy or approach towards driving profitability in the e-commerce space, especially for a brand like Zule Kitchen? So... You know, there was this viral article about garlic press sales because we're the number one garlic press seller. Someone analyzed from the outside and they said, hey, we lost, I don't know, $300,000 on selling garlic presses or 200000 or whatever. But it's actually a miscalculation. I don't believe in losing money. I want to say when you have zero reviews, maybe. But once you're at 25 reviews and above, which should be in your first month, you shouldn't be losing money. If you're losing money, that sucks. I don't know what to say. We have, you know, Samurai Seller, which tracks daily profit stuff. And we made that because when we were focused just on revenue, we literally almost went bankrupt. At one point, I was making less money when I had four employees than when I was an employee myself. I didn't realize how far off in profitability I was. We didn't have profit and loss statements monthly. I probably had one, I guess, for accounting purposes, but I never looked at it for yearly. And you're nowhere without profit because profit is what you get to actually use to grow your company. You could sell a million dollars, $2 million, $10 million. I know a seller who's 20 million plus and had the negative year of profit, like literally the entire year, tons of staff, this products, and they're negative. I do not believe in that. So for product launches, sure, the first month, if you're going to lose money, that's okay. Maybe two months. But we try to keep, even at launch phase, we like to keep it around break even. We like to lose like zero dollars or have it price break even. We only lose a little bit of ads. Because in the marketplace, I believe you can only have incremental gains, meaning you can only get a little bit better. So if I'm losing a 20% margin on everything, if I get a little bit better, I might be at negative 10%. I might be at negative 5%. Maybe I get to break even. Nobody wants a company at break even. It's actually a losing proposition. So you need to figure out and debug, right? Debugging comes from literally there was bugs inside computer chips and pieces. You have to take the bugs out. Whatever is bugging you out, whatever is messing you up, you need to take it out. And when you solve those issues, you will have profit because profit is what customers reward you for giving them a good experience. And without profit, you're dead. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot on the show, actually, that revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. So it fits in well with our approach as well. So I think considering your impressive journey from starting as a side hustle, where you wanted to earn $500 to $1,000, which is pretty similar to my journey, to be fair. I didn't get quite as far as you did, but it's by the by. To becoming a top Amazon seller, how have you strategically evolved your brand to stay ahead of the market trends while maintaining high profitability? So the beginning was obsession, personal obsession, where... I wanted to win. I wanted to have a better product. I wanted to deliver better results. I started with Amazing Selling Machine, which a lot of people started with, Matt Clark and Jason Katzenbach. These guys sold something like 80, 90, 100 million dollars of this course, right? At 5,000 bucks a piece, that's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people starting on Amazon. But you take any course, right? Even my course, right? 
anybody's course, you can go into it and there's information. Those are tools, okay? Those are not your only tools. You have a lifetime of experience. You have a lifetime of things. My mom, right? My mom, her name is Zulai, right? Zulai Kitchen's named after my mom. I remember when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, my mom was doing a business deal and she bought some products. This is pre-Alibaba. Alibaba didn't exist. She bought some products off some website of some person in China. And she bought some MP3 players, okay? If you guys remember MP3 players, probably some of this audience is literally doesn't even know what an MP3 player is. <laughs> this is before you had the iPhone. You had a little thing that literally just played audio files, right? And so she bought a huge box of MP3 players from China. She must have bought four or 500 MP3 players, I don't know, 10 bucks each, whatever it was. It was a lot of money for her at the time. And she got them and they were 90% defective. Like they didn't even work. Right. And I'm a little kid there. And she's telling me like, we got this. And she's on the phone cussing somebody out. These products are garbage. Like she's really, really so mad because she wasted her money. And what that showed me is like a kid is like, listen, why would you do that? Why would you screw over a customer? You made money once. You made quick money off my mom. Right. Single mom, two boys. Like that's one that's sad. That's bad business. But it's also very short sighted. Because you could have had a customer for life. You could have had a customer that was with you for years, but instead you went after, okay, I just made $3,000 scamming somebody, right? Selling them garbage. Where are you? You're nobody. You create hate. You create bad will. And it's not just bad business. It's bad for your life. It's bad for you as a person. What are you delivering to the world? So just growing up around an entrepreneur, my mom, I saw how important it was to actually do a good job. And how much of a difference it made when you screwed somebody over versus you actually did something that was valuable. So one of my tools was that just a mentality of doing something. So when I did Amazing Selling Machine, when I did any course, masterminds, events, whatever, I go with, hey, let me learn the technical side of Amazon. But I can never forget the North Star, the guiding principle, which is what value am I going to actually bring to the market? And when I started Zulai Kitchen, I said, my products need to be better than the next guy. My products would be so good that if we disappeared, people will miss us. And that was a piece that I added to all product development that I said, I need to be better in some way. And if not, I have no purpose in business. And so I think that foundational piece helped us a lot. I really like that, that your products need to be so good that if you disappeared, people would miss you. That's a really good mentality to have, I think. So that's one of the ways that you differentiate yourself from the market. Because as you've said, there's like thousands of people have gone through Matt and Jason's course and have learned to be an Amazon seller. So what are the other ways that you stand out from the marketplace? So I want to say it's the staff, the team. There's this a bit of like the hustle mentality. And I think you should hustle. I think hustling is good. I think there's no problem working if you're working 80 hours a week. I have no issues with that. What are you missing so bad? Okay, you didn't watch the last Reacher episode. What really is your life going to change for you to work another 20, 30 hours? Really, a lot of times nothing changes, particularly if, you know, you don't have children or you're single or whatever. Like, what are the things you're missing is not a lot. However, there's a way to multiply that where if I have 10 people on my team that are sold on the vision, that have an upside with me, that are doing something together with me, I'm not working 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week. I'm working 400 hours a week. I have a scalability aspect where I can multiply that. And a lot of sellers, particularly around the $1 to $3 million mark, they get to a $1 million, they get to $1.5 billion, $2 million, whatever it is, and they're very happy. And hey, you could be very happy with that and stay there. Better for me. It's better for me that you stick around the $2 million mark, right? So no problem. Like, keep going. So for me, though, I thought, why get this far? Why get so close to what I would consider greatness, right? Greatness is by definition something far above the average, right? Above and exceptional, something that is beyond average. And the thing is that when you get like just above the halfway mark, right? Like you're at a million dollars, at $2 million, you're in that range where you're already close to quote unquote the top, but you're not taking that step to get really exceptional. But you have all the skills. If you could get one product to $500,000, you literally know every single step for you to also make a $100 million company. Because all you need is 200 of those products doing half a million, and you are officially a $100 million seller. We almost hit $100 million this last year, right? With all our brands and everything combined. 
just shy of 100 million this year. I mean, I think it'll be really crazy if we didn't hit it. So I really, really believe we will this year. And it's like, the skills are the same. The launching the products is the same. The images are the same. The ads are the same. Like, a lot of the skills are the same stuff, but it's multiplying. And how do you multiply? It is with a team. You cannot scale to 100 million. You cannot scale to exceptional levels without a fantastic team that is on the same page with you, that has similar goals to you, that believes in your vision and your dream that you're putting forward. So I think the team, it's the unlock really that people are missing. Yeah. So a couple of follow-on to that then. So how do you find these people? And then you mentioned that they are in it with you. They get upside. Are you talking about shares in the company that they acquire those? Or is it like bonuses and when good performances? How do you do that bit? So we implemented this, I want to say two years ago, maybe three years ago, where we have a profit share. So the way that we do our profit share system currently, and, and we're changing it, and I'm always trying to think of ways to do it. I haven't yet given shares in the company. I'm sure there's ways and times that you can do that. The reason I don't like to give shares in the company is that say the person works for two years, they have a share, then they leave and they keep the shares with them. So I feel like it's a bit of a lost opportunity. Again, I can't say I know all about this because Jeff Bezos did it that way and he's, you know, richest man or second richest man in the world, the way you look at it. Uh, Elon Musk did the same thing. So clearly there's a way to do shares, but I haven't had success with that. The way that we've done, and again, maybe there's a better way. I'm sure there's a better way. But the way that we've done it is we go, hey, if we're more profitable this month, take a January, we're now in January, 2024. If January, 2024 is more profitable, has more net income, then January 2023, then everybody gets a bonus, okay? And we do like, I make it tiered. So at the beginning, I just had one system. It was up, you get a bonus. Now it's like, hey, if we're up 5%, you get, you know, some bonus. If you're up 10%, do a different bonus. If we're up like 20 or 30%, the bonus literally triples. Because what happens is, let's say you're paying out 4% of the company's profit, right? 5%. How much are you going to pay out as a bonus to all the staff? Well, if you're up 30% and you're only paying 5%, you're up, dude. You're actually winning and everybody wins because I've been in a job where you cannot change your income whatsoever. And I don't really love that because I feel like, hey, I did all this stuff. Like, let's go with this. And then I go and ask for, let's say I'm asking for a raise and I can't get a raise. And I'm like, well, I worked in a startup before in programming. And even if I do a good job, it doesn't mean the company's more profitable because the company's losing money, as you know, that experiences. So it's like, okay. So I go, hey, let's become more profitable. This is how I can make the company more profitable. That would be my suggestion. And they're saying, no, no, we don't care about profit. And I said, damn it. But then, okay, you don't care about profit. You don't care if I make the company more profitable. How the hell am I going to make more money? So it's tough. So even if you excel, I'd like if people excel and they do something extraordinary, they get back more than average or higher than average pay, right? I mean, it's kind of a simple concept and there's no way to lose if you're a percentage up and then you pay less than the percentage that you're up as a bonus because then we're all on the same page. That was the first question. Second one, you asked me where I find the people. So it's a bit of a tough one. So one thing, my wife does a lot of the hiring, Whitney, and she is kind of on the lookout for people. Maybe she's known in the past or she knows somebody who's working somewhere. We kind of know of a person who's doing very well. And... One thing that has worked well for us is poaching, right? Getting people from positions that are doing well. And again, she kind of disagrees with me on this because maybe the majority of our staff are not poached, right? We actually have a small percentage that are poached, but I think a lot of good staff have been poached and taken from other companies. So I like to talk about this and my wife sometimes disagrees. But if somebody is doing so well at their job and they're so happy and they're doing fantastic, wouldn't that be the best person probably in your company too? As opposed to somebody who just got laid off somebody who's unhappy with their work, because if they have that kind of track record, they might be unhappy in your work too. They might do something, they get fired in your work too. So a lot of times when you put out job applications or you put out job posting, you're going to get people who just got laid off, just got fired, are unhappy with their work. They may not be your best time person. The absolute best people are the guys who are very happy with their jobs. So you go, okay, you might have some buddies. Maybe you're in a software founders group and someone had a company and obviously you don't want to take people from your friends' companies, but maybe somebody started a company and they sold it. Actually, one of our top employees right now is a guy who was at a friend's company of mine and he sold the company. And then that designer guy, he's like, dude, this is one of my best designers. You should hire him because he's no longer going to work with the team because blah, 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 whatever. Those a whole story. 
But he's like, I would hire him in a heartbeat, but I no longer have the company. Boom, that's a fantastic employee. He's been with us for many years, right? So if somebody sells their company that's your friend, see, hey, who are their best staff? That's a good place, right? If you know somebody from, who knows, a soccer club, you know them from church, you know them from wherever, but they're doing fantastic at their job, go talk to them and don't go there and say, hey, I want to recruit you. Just go chat with them, have a coffee, do whatever. Hey, how's it going? I love my job. Fantastic. Well, let me share what I'm doing. And then you slowly tell them, hey, oh, what do you make? You're making 100K. You're making whatever. You're blah. Okay, we'll tell you what, dude. Look at this upside. Look at Amazon. Like, hey, I'm now a millionaire. You know, you could learn this skill. Because the benefit is not just the pay. E-commerce, man, anybody who learns e-commerce right now should be rich in a decade from now. If you know how to sell online right now, in a decade from now, it's going to be very hard for you not to be rich. Like, it's going to be very hard. So even if you cannot match their pay, say, look, this industry is better than banking. Like banking industry, if you're literally a banker and a career and you're not making a bank, you're not doing some crazy thing, you're probably not going to make that much money over time. Switch careers, even if they need a pay cut. So anyway, poaching is a big one. Two, you know, communities, go to events, go to places and meet people. Just be willing to hire and pay people what they're asking for. And if they don't work out, then fire them because you'll never know. You could say, hey, I want to pay $70,000 for this role. I want to pay $40,000. I want to, whatever it is. And someone comes and say, look, man, I need 55000 instead of 40000 And you go, damn, dude, I don't know. No, no, hire them. Hire them at that price. And if they don't work out in a month, two months, three months, then you say, sorry, dude, it's not working out. And you fire them. So I think taking the chance on people, if they have a good track record and they're asking for something higher, give it to them give it to them and say, look, I'm giving you everything you're asking for. Now give me 110%. Let's work together and let's see if it works out. And if it doesn't, then fire them and go to the next one. Too many times people hang on to people because that's the cheapest, because it's this, because whatever. I know, be willing to move your team around. You never have the perfect team. That's saying, isn't it? Hire fast, fire faster. Something like that. So sticking with cost, how do you balance your cost management for innovation and product development? in terms of ensuring that the new products not only meet the demands of the market, but that they're still very profitable for you. How do you manage that? Changing and updating products. We're spoiled. The Amazon community is spoiled with the fact that they think you get the best seller badge and you're supposed to stick there for two decades. If you go to brick and mortar stores, if you go to the Walmarts, the Costco's of the world, they know on average a new product will last eight months to two years. Their shelves, they're rotating. They always have new winners. Amazon, because of the reviews, has a fake weight to old products. But really the customer demand, if you're not innovating your product, it will become an old seller that nobody wants anymore. It's going to happen the best sellers do rotate, not as quickly as in brick and mortar. In the retail stores, they will shift every two years. The new products will be on the shelf. Like they're not the same ones. Even Monopoly, dude, take about kids games. Monopoly, probably the biggest, longest selling board game of all time. They don't have the same Monopoly, bro. They have Star Wars Monopoly, Coco Melon Monopoly, the UK Monopoly, Australian Monopoly. Who knows? Like uh, Tom and Jerry Monopoly, right? A cartoon, uh, Power Rangers Monopoly. They do all this crazy stuff. Hasbro, top toy company in the world, they know you cannot just take the profits and take the sales from your product you made five years ago. You need to continually develop them, continue to add because you will die otherwise. And on Amazon, you're spoiled and you think because you have 10,000 reviews, nobody can come and eat your lunch. And you sit there and you're like, I'm going to take this, I'm going to live on the beach. No, dude, sorry. That product is going to get eaten unless it develops and moves forward. So yes, you have a bit of a handicap because you have more reviews. So your new developments should do better because they have more reviews. And a lot of times you can share those reviews legally, right? If it's a true variation. But if you're not innovating, you will get left in the past. And your profit will get less in the past too, right? That's what's going to happen. So taking your garlic press as an example then, how many iterations of that has there been over the years? So right now we're adding three colors to that listing. We added the little peeler. We're doing a new thing now that's not out yet, which I don't want to talk about right exactly the second. We have always new variations. We have six different models of garlic presses that we've released. We have the tool-worn garlic press. We have stainless steel. We have the zinc alloy. We have different coats. We have different combos. 
and you try and you hit the market. And you know, one time we were going to get overtaken. We got the badge because we tested the product. And actually, my wife literally was like, I hate the top garlic press. The top garlic press at the time was, I think, Alpha Grillers. Alpha Grillers is a brand. The little piece on the inside comes out. It was a top seller for a long time. My wife hated it, right? So I go, good. That's good feedback. Let's do the better one. So which one do you like? And we tested a bunch of samples. She said, this one's the best. It's fantastic. I love it. I'll never get rid of it. And good. Bing, bing, bing. Like, that's our winner. Okay. From a real customer, I'm going to change the market from people hating the one that's selling the most to people loving it. Because, you know, my wife, again, she's one person, but she's indicative of a customer who's using the garlic press. So we changed it to that model and it took us a while and then we got the best seller batch. But then, I want to say maybe a year later that, someone got our similar model, added some stuff, did whatever, and then they eventually took the batch. But when they were coming up and we saw them, we said, okay, well, we need to do little add-ons like they're doing to defend. We need to continue to upgrade. So we made an offer that was better than their offer. We added another four colors, right? And then we went heavy and then we got the badge again. So it's a continuous battle where you can see where people are coming and see what they're doing to try and beat you and then see if you then beat them. And you. it's a continuous improvement battle where in the end, the customer wins because the product has to improve. The product has to improve. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself competing on price at that point, though, when you got new competitors coming up? Because I know when I was selling back in like 2014 to 2018, a lot of it was price driven on the products that I sold that were sort of around the same price mark, I reckon. Is it like very price sensitive or how are you battling that? Yes and no. So customers will always compare products. Always. At least in Amazon, right? Not in your grocery store where you only have one garlic press available, right? You're going to grab it. On Amazon, they're going to compare. So if the products are identical or almost identical, they're close, then you're going to compare in price. The times when you don't have to compare so much on price is where your value is higher or better in some way, right? So ideally, you want to do some sort of intellectual property. If you create something patented, if you create something special, if you work with the best supplier, you get an exclusive deal where you can develop product, make them actually better. Like our frothers last longer. I want to say that any other frother on the market, like we've tested it. We have, I don't know, this is our 11th iteration of the motors. We work on these motors hardcore. But that factory, our improvements only apply to our frothers because they do not supply to anybody else for Amazon, period, right? So you want to develop something where you're actually, you can be better. And even then, you will still compete on price. Some people come in like, and just go crazy. And you know, yes, our prices go down. But we'll see next year, probably coming up in February or March, we're going to have an update where I think we'll be able to raise our price significantly because we secured a really, really cool improvement to the product. So yes, a lot of times you will compete on price. And so it's like, how do you counteract that? We need to find something better and do something better. Can it always be found? No. And, and sometimes, hey, we've had products where we start losing market share. Absolutely. This is life. So luckily, we have enough staff where we're going to add enough products. And even if we lose here or there, we lose on a couple of products. Overall, we can still grow because then maybe new markets, we grew there. And then who knows? We'll work on R&D and see if we can make something better than the competition. Yeah. Hypothetically then, so thinking about, so you've got a listing that's sitting in the bestseller position at the top of the list, and you've got a new competitor that's starting to take market share away from you because they have a lower price. Let's say the products are almost the same. What's your mentality then? Are you thinking, okay, well, I'm going to start to try and differentiate in other ways. And then how do you sort of portray that to the customer? Or are you thinking, well, actually, I would rather maintain my number one status. So I would reduce the price in order to maintain that. How do you think that through? It depends how good the product is, right? How much profit is it bringing in? How badly do I need this? In some cases, we lost a spot. It wasn't worth it. Something like that, whatever. We keep some profit. But in some cases, if it's a bigger product to our category, what we'll do is we want to also have the lower price version as well. You want to make it a down sell, so to speak. So you can have a lower price one to compete and you can have your high price one, right? You can see on the milk frothers. Now we have like different motor powers. We have stand, no stand. Yes, separate listings. You can see that in the lemon squeezer. We have the two-in-one lemon squeezer, but we have the not two-in-one lemon squeezer. We used to have the citrus press, but the cheaper one, it was hard. Like we had the big citrus press. That's the highest price one on the market by far. And we made a small one that we could sell for like $25, $30. But that product was so bad, the reviews came in bad, we weren't able to do it, right? And so we dropped that one. We don't even sell that anymore. 
But sometimes you want to see, can you make that cheaper model when it costs you less? And that one can compete on price. And then you keep like your winner that has a decent price with a good margin that you could run the most ads on. So ideally, uh, comes from a book called, I believe it's The End of Marketing as We Know It, Sergio Zyman, or if not, it was called The Rise and Fall of PR by Al Reese and Al Reese's brother or something like that. Anyway, he talks about Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble, probably the most successful consumer products company in the entire history of humankind, okay? What they do is that they launch competitors to themselves to take their own market share. And the concept is, if you can take your own market share, then it means someone else would have also been able to take it. So they literally launch like competing brands and competing products to their own and try to take it forcibly. And if they literally can convince a customer to go with this other newer brand, then it means their position wasn't strong enough. They need to strengthen their position somehow. And if not, now they cannibalized it instead of a competitor cannibalizing it. So this concept, I apply this to Amazon as well, which is, hey, I'd rather take my own market share with a cheaper product than a competitor coming to take my market share with a cheaper product. So you want to have the highest price, you want to have the premium version, you want to have the middle version, you want to have the lower price version. Now, maybe that's not starting out. This is, again, for products that you already have established. It's already good. For, it's in one of your core products. We call it our hero items. It's like our 80-20. It's the 20 of the 80-20. Those items you can defend in that way. You're not going to do that for every product in your catalog. Mm. So thinking about position, and then you mentioned that's obviously the positioning of how Procter & Gamble sort of position their products. How are you doing yours in terms of your brand with Zulay Kitchen? What's your niche that you're going after? You know, I haven't thought about it too much, but... I want to have the lowest price. I want to have the middle price. I want to have the highest price. I want to have exclusive versions. I want to have crazy ones. I want to have crazy packaging. I want to have the gold stripe on it. I want to have 24 karat gold sprinkled on like a garlic press, right? And let's say I can sell that thing for like 50 bucks, right? And then I also want to sell a middle one. And I want to have the cheapest, tiniest garbage version. If somebody wants a $5 garlic press, I want to be able to give it to them if it's possible. And on those really cheap ones, sometimes I may not want to put the Zulai Kitchen name. So maybe I want to have an off-brand, right? That if the product is so bad, it's like almost like a dollar store brand name, right? Not that garbage, like Walmart has their brand called Great Value. You don't think Great Value is like a bad brand, but it's just you know that you're going to get a low-cost item that's probably not as good as the other one. So you know that it's not as good. So I don't always like to make the cheap price on Zulai Kitchen. We made off brands like Simple Craft. We just purchased a company and we're probably going to use that company as like the lower brand name item. That way we can have the lower price without kind of tainting the brand name. I want to have all the best, the medium and the top Zulai Kitchen. And then we have other brands of ours to fill in that super low price gap. So they come to expect it because the brand name is supposed to mean something. And I want Zulai Kitchen to mean best quality, best service, lifetime warranty, we'll take care of you. These are products that we've researched that are better than the competition. And the ones where we're like, hey, we just want the cheapest one. We're going to use a different brand name for that long term. We weren't able to do that. Some items we have really cheap in Zulai Kitchen that are just a low price. But overall, this is what we want to do. Yeah. I actually saw that on LinkedIn that you were looking for other brands in the Amazon space in the kitchen market to acquire. That was quite interesting, actually. I've seen the aggregators come along and buy other businesses, but I've never seen actual Amazon businesses buy other Amazon businesses. So that was interesting. How's that going? It's great. In fact, hey, if anyone's listening to this and you have any kitchen brands, send it over to me, aaroncardovas.com slash exit. You can fill out a form there. We definitely are buying anything kitchen. We're also buying brands of any category that do over a million in profit. So we have a fund, Nexus Capital, and we are buying brands. We also buy with investors, accredited investors only. And that's been fantastic. We closed on two companies so far this year, one in July, one in Nexus Capital already. It's the 22nd of January. We have two acquisitions under our belt, both very good. And it's going great. I mean, why not? Like one of the brands we acquired had a campaign that had, I'm not even joking, $35,000 in spend. A campaign. It spent $35,000 and the sales were 7000 They spent $35,000. The ACOS was 8000 And I go, what is this? When you find a brand and you're analyzing it and their ads are terrible. The other one that we bought, that was one brand. The other one that we bought 
their number one campaign, the most spent. Again, so this is like things what not to do. If you're doing this, please go just watch more videos. Go watch my videos. Go do something. Their number one performing campaign was the automatic campaign. The most spend, the most sales, everything. They just said, here's auto, and they cranked it up, and that thing was running out of budget by like 11 in the morning, using all their budget, and then we're done. And I go, oh my gosh, there's so much improvement on this brand because all we do, we like extract the keywords, right? Samurai Seller can help you extract keywords if you know how to do it, but otherwise it's like pretty simple. You take your search term report. You even now, you don't even need the report. You do a red in campaign manager. Grab all those searches and then make exact, make broad, make phrase campaigns out of them, make all the different campaign types and target those keywords specifically. And you don't spend money on garbage that automatic campaigns will spend for you. So all of the budget, was in a campaign that was spending 70% of their budget on terrible keywords. We switched it and that company's already significantly more profitable and significantly selling a lot more, having now two bestseller badges they didn't have before. Well, one badge you can have back and forth that one it like almost never had only on deals. Now we have both of those badges. I mean, it's not even been 22 days since we bought it. So buying companies, the big value add is when they're not managed well. If you have a spectacular company, they're doing everything perfect, maybe that's not the one you want to buy. You want to buy one that has ugly images, very poor ad management, yet they're still making 300 profit, 300K profit, a million profit, 2 million, whatever it is. Big and poorly managed, those are the absolute best ones to buy. Now, again, maybe you think you're the best manager on the planet. It's okay. Fill out the form anyway. I'll look at it. And nobody's the most perfectly managed. Everybody makes mistakes. Our accounts have mistakes. Everybody's going to have mistakes. So it's okay. But I, anyway, if you're interested in selling, we have good deals. We have good all-cash deals up front. We have some deals where we do a lot of cash up front. And then we do, you know, kind of the earnouts, And our earnouts are very good. So anyway, you want to sell, please, guys, reach out to me. I love buying brands. The mergers and acquisitions, fantastic. And oh, actually, both of the people we bought from, this is not their first company sold. They're doing it, these two for this year. Both of these sellers have already sold brands before. So they'll go, they'll sell the brand, take that money, start another brand, and make that brand even bigger. So it's actually a win-win because we win, we're buying it, we can grow it. And the seller wins because they take all that cash and they can repeat it. And with 20% of the money that they just you know got for the sale, they repeat it, make the brand again, and they just continue to flip it. So really, I mean, it's a good thing. You know, I don't know, capitalism, consumerism, changing. I don't know how much you know about me, but that's exactly how I did it. I started in 2014. I did Amazing Seller Machine as well. I started an Amazon brand built that up to six figures, sold that, and then started again and just rinse and repeat. And then the second one got up to seven figures because I was able to scale quicker. Cash flow was the thing that held me back. And that's why I sold and started again. So yeah, definitely does work. That's brilliant. Yeah, look, smart move. Make the sale and then you have an understanding. You know the categories, you know what you want to do, you know what you don't want to do, you have money. It's a fantastic thing, selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then move into SaaS. Yeah. So as Zule Kitchen has grown then, what strategies have you implemented to ensure scaling up operations doesn't negatively impact your profitability? You talked about finding all the right people, paying them the right money and giving them bonuses. What sort of other things are you doing in terms of like logistics and sourcing and stuff like that in order to make sure that as you scale, there's nothing that's a bottleneck? Well, one thing, and, and we actually do use Link My Books, by the way. We've got on that a while back, I don't know, two years ago. We've, we got on it early because we get all the data and we put it into our PL. And we look at the PL, the profit and loss every month, and we go, hey, where are we hitting? Where are we compared to last year? Where are we getting hit? And analyzing it bit by bit, every business is different, right? Sometimes we're getting really hit on storage. Sometimes we're getting really hit on re refunds. Sometimes, wow, our payroll percentage is up, not points, but total, maybe it's up 30, 40% versus the year before. Crap, like what happened? Oh, like we just look at it, man. The thing is, business is a very dynamic, high, excitement activity. There's a lot of things happening all the time. So it's not the same one month as it is another month, right? What have we implemented? Looking at it, man. Just like sitting down, looking at it. You know, marketplaces, we had the highest ever month in sales and this, but oh, wow, profitability was actually down. What the hell happened? Oh, wow, the marketplace was actually managing our ads for us. Oh, whoops. Well, that's stupid. Like, let's take it over. Okay. Like random things where you just have to look at every line item, look at what happened and say, this is out of place. Like, let's go fix this thing. And yes, we've hired up staff and then fired down maybe 30, 40% once, maybe twice. Like we've had where we expect like a plan to pan out and it doesn't. And you have to move quickly. If we hired 20 people and the revenue and the profit didn't change and didn't improve, like we probably made some bad hires 
and we got to scale it back. And these are people's lives. And I'm fully aware of that. And as part of that is people want to be in a place where they're making an impact. The sort of narrative is, hey, you're firing somebody, you're like maybe running their life or whatever. But I believe if it's a bad fit for the company, it's also a bad fit for the employee. If you're not bringing value to a company, you're not shining, you're not excited about your job, and you're kind of dragging it out, and it's not product-oriented, maybe getting fired is the best thing that happened to you because now you found a new location where you're going to better be fit and you're going to better shine. So sometimes, look, man, it is a business, and we take care of our people, we take care of the customer, and we know that it's not for everybody, right? We're not a charity, right? We're actually a business, and we need to be able to achieve our goals as the number one priority. So I don't know, man, just look at it with that kind of eye of like, what is all the line items that where are we losing and analyzing it that way? Yeah, no, oh, that's cool. That's really good to know actually because that's the direction that we're taking with Link My Books at the moment is we brought out this new analytics product, which is going to have like a P&L by channel built in. So not only will the data flow through to your bookkeeping system, but you'll also be able to see all those line items directly inside of Link My Books and run comparisons over data ranges and compare against not only your own channels, but also next month we're bringing out benchmarking so that you can then benchmark against industry averages as well, which I think is going to be really cool to be able to see like not specific P&L items, but to be able to see like how is your sales growth compared to other businesses of your size? How's your refund ratio? How is your refund ratio trend? And like we've got loads of KPIs that are coming that you're going to be able to compare to. So I think that could be quite cool. And sticking on that topic of sort of tools, you've mentioned using Link My Books, which is great. You've also mentioned Samurai Seller, which is your own product. How has technology adapted the way that you grow your brand over time? So our business is very technology focused. People say, hey, Amazon is so hard, right? Selling on Amazon is hard. I go like, are you crazy? Please go and tell the Spartans, right? The warriors that fought in battles and like got like shot and stabbed and whatever, like they had to get shields and like, tell them that this is hard. Hold on. I'm sitting at a computer with my fingers. This is my entire business. This is hard. Like, what are you talking about, bro? There's no hard labor. There's like no sweating. Like, yes, you're risking money and there's stuff like that. Okay, of course, it gets stressful times. Okay, lawsuits, bankruptcy, this kind of stuff. It could be hard. Okay. But really, when you look at it, your job is sitting at a computer and moving your fingers, right? Yes. Does it take skill? Absolutely. But it is not hard in any way of the Spartan sense, right? In any way of the warrior sense. And so I like to tell people the reason that is, is because technology. Do you know if it wasn't for Amazon, Amazon FBA, the thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people that have shipped our products, literally warehouse people, the hard work that literally goes into managing a warehouse, getting the orders out on time. This like, I went to this one of these warehouses. These Amazon warehouses are massive, right? There is a lot of motion. There's movement. There's stuff. We get all of that for $3.64 per order, which is less than the cost of the post office to ship an item. And we have to go to the post office, pay for the package. We are spoiled with technology because it is so easy where you literally like, no, I don't have to package a product. No, I don't have to ship it. No, I don't have to deal with them. No, I don't have to answer calls. I don't have to do any of this. Amazon does it for me for $3.64 per piece. That's what you call technology making your life easy. And that also applies to profitability, the payroll. Like payroll we do with Gusto, right? Gusto is like a, a payroll software. We love it. Did you push a button? The payroll's done. I don't have like an accountant having to check all this stuff because the software literally for $8 a month per person you have all your payroll handled. You have employee onboarding documents. The files, dude. Technology does all our employee files, our government taxes, you know, a tax jar of Alara for like reporting taxes to the government. You connect up all these different softwares and you're like, dude, I can only imagine how hard business was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when like you didn't have the internet. Like you're going to have to go to the street and like hand out flyers. You need to like build a building. Every single thing you do, write the books by hand, find an error in a big map. Like there's so many issues we do not have to deal with because of technology, because of people like yourself making softwares, because of literally 
people and generations of people working to make even coding be a thing, to make even software become a thing. We're resting on the shoulders of other people that have worked hard to make our lives easier. And all we have to do is learn how to use these things, learn how to type, learn how to do a couple little things, and hey, we can be successful. Move the mouse in the right direction, bro. Write the right keys. And then people literally in China are going to build and have factory workers and labor and teams and everything. You paid $1,500, bro. And you got a product live on Amazon for $1,500. You don't have to travel to China. You don't have to pack anything. You don't have to lift a hammer. You don't have to put a package. You have to do absolutely nothing. And people say, this is hard. Go read the story of Nike, the founder, Phil Knight, Shoe Dog. For this guy to make a pair of shoes, he had to like fight for his life, go to Japan, meet with people, make deals. It took him, I want to say, a year of hard work, asking, researching, calling, going out with no money to a country he had nothing to try to make one first order of shoes because the suppliers are that hard to get to. Now, any single person with like 500 bucks can go in and make a pair of shoes. Maybe not 500 bucks. I don't know how much it costs. I'm not in the shoe business. But like, tell me this is hard, bro. It's not. We're in a technological age where people have worked so hard to make our lives easier, but we need to have the skill to take advantage of these tools. Yeah. What's coming next then? Looking to the future, what are the emerging trends and opportunities you see that are going to be pivotal for brands to sort of increase that profitability in the e-commerce space? I think it's learning more than just Amazon. I think that the Macy's of the world, the Kohl's, there's other marketplaces coming up that I think at some point might give Amazon a run for their money. The big benefit that Amazon has right now is the shipping, right? And of course, all the Prime members, they have the Prime members, they have the shipping, they have this easy access, but TikTok coming up, TikTok is gaining eyeballs. Yes, they are absolutely Chinese, but a lot of people, my daughter, she's nine. She just turned nine. She was telling me she got these shoes or something. And her friends asked her, hey, did you get that on TikTok shop? These are eight-year-olds asking, hey, did you get that on TikTok shop? What the hell is this, bro? I don't let my daughter be on TikTok. It's like they're talking about it as if it's so cool because this is the Gen Z whatever era. There's going to be people taking on Amazon and hey, will they have the shipment and delivery? Maybe not, but at that maybe people will change their mind that they don't need it same day or next day and they're okay with two days or four days or five days. And if that becomes more normalized, hey, they might be losing market share to a lot of other places. The Walmarts of the world might get cheaper pricing. They might get different brand. We don't know. So I think the big value add is expand past Amazon. Learn how to create your own attention. Learn the ads. And we haven't done that well. We're not very good at Instagram Reels or the TikToks or Facebooks of the world. I'm learning that myself. That's next for me is we need to learn that. In fact, we're doing a collaboration with a pretty big influencer right now. Actually, a couple. I've literally had meetings with like influencers over the last month, like several of them, pretty large influencers, people that reach millions. And hey, how do we do brands? How do we do partnerships with people who can get attention? Because right now, Amazon can get a ton of attention, but the day that Amazon stops getting that attention is the day that you go, oh, I have to create my own attention. Mm. How much effort should people be putting on that then? Because when I was running my Amazon brands and people tell you, obviously, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So I started a Shopify store and like 80% of my time went into trying to make that work. And it was making like 5% of my overall profit. I did that for like six to nine months and then just thought, you know, it's so much easier. to just launch more stuff on Amazon. Should that be the mentality? Should it be that you give it a good go, but then if it doesn't work, just continue with Amazon? Or do you truly believe that you need to diversify? It's a great question. Well, you know, Jabran Niaz, he's the number two right now on all Amazon on seller ratings. He does 650 million just Amazon and he doesn't do any marketplaces, doesn't do wholesale. He does nothing. He just does that. And he's doing quite well for himself, okay, with just Amazon. So I think you must know and learn Amazon first before even trying to tackle anything. If you're not making profit on Amazon, do never do anything else. The way I've done it is we're making the team big enough where I can have people dedicated to that and they're learning it. And then I'm going to see if I can get enough people launching new products, spending my cash on new products, the company's cash like on new launches and have that everything going so then I can focus on, hey, what is the next thing? And the answer came from what is the future? 
like right now, the majority of our sales and profit comes from Amazon. But I don't think it'll be that way forever. So it's more about the future and about being prepared for it. But the best way to be prepared is to have enough bandwidth, to have enough profit and enough spectacular products on Amazon where other marketplaces will work well because you've actually developed the product. Your resource, the thing that is valuable is your product being better. If you did that through Amazon and now you have a superior product, when you go to the marketplaces and Shopify, you have to develop your own interest. Luckily on other marketplaces, right? Like Macy's or Kohl's or something like that, you have already customers, right? I would say that's easier than doing Shopify. Shopify is its own thing in its own world. We haven't done that. And you're lucky 5%. We have less than 1% on Shopify. And so I would say until you're profitable and until you have staff, don't do anything but Amazon. Do Amazon, hey, if you've gone Amazon to a point where you have three, four or five staff, good. Now you can have somebody focus on marketplaces and then you could also delve into that as long as you keep Amazon going. But absolutely, Amazon will be the first. And today it is the best channel. I would stick to that 100%. And in fact, some people out in the UK they do really good on Amazon UK, not in the US. That's another option too, right? But that's kind of considered to me other marketplaces because Amazon US is my bread and butter. But like you might find a big market share in there. I know somebody who I had on my podcast the other day, they're the number one seller in beauty or were the number one seller in beauty, all beauty in Italy because they're Italian. Find the niche, but Amazon, whether it's Amazon International or Amazon US or Amazon Canada or Amazon Mexico, do Amazon first until it's profitable. And then when you can have staff, then you would expand for sure. Don't do something else first. Yeah. Cool. Last two questions then. First one, what one thing can e-commerce professionals do right now to boost their profitability? If you had to pick one thing. Try higher prices. Play with your prices, higher or lower. Funny enough, sometimes a lower price could actually make you more profit because even more profit percentage, because maybe you're spending 20, 25% on ads, right? A 25% we call total ACOS or tacos, and your price is priced at 55% margin. You're selling a product that costs you $3, you're selling it for $30. Maybe if you dropped it literally to $19.99 and you dropped your ads by 75%, you'd be making more margin percentage and total profit. Play with lower prices, play with higher prices. That is probably the most aggressive way that is instant. Yes, product development is long-term profitability. But today, I talk to people all the time. I said, hey, when's the last time you raised your price? Oh, I raised my price last week by $2.00. And the sales didn't change. I go, okay, raise it again. They're like, what do you mean? I just raised it. Raise it again. Like, if you're not raising it until a point where the sales at least get affected, you're not high enough because people want your product. And this person even has a patented product, the one that I was talking about just now. They have a patented product. They raised it a few bucks. Sales are the same. Dude, why don't you raise it more? You develop something, you can get rewarded for it. Like, go ahead and try and raise it. Similarly, don't be so greedy. You're spending so much on ads. Bring down your price. Like, play with it. Yeah, adjust in price. Yeah, it's the same in the SaaS space as well. You adjust the price upwards and upwards and upwards until eventually you hit sort of resistance. And then that's really the price that is balanced with the value you're providing. So it's the same idea for physical products, I guess. So last question then, who in the world of e-commerce would you most like to take to lunch? If you could pick any two or three people, who would you like to take lunch and pick their brains? I mean, my first answer comes, you know, obviously like a Jeff Bezos, like the founder of Amazon, like what the hell, what's this? But at this point, he's out of the business and plus like, Honestly, would I ever work with Jeff Bezos? He'd be like, dude, you're nice and cool. Like, please like get the hell off my watch. So that might not be worth my time just because like, what the hell am I going to learn from Jeff Bezos? He'll never work with me. I'm such a small fish. I'm literally a nobody to the guy. So I might not get a lot of long-term value. Some e-commerce space, dude. Whoever's like behind Nespresso and like coffee, man. I want to talk to those guys and work out because that's a big piece for me. I'd love to either work with them or learn from them or who knows, take over Nespresso, dude. $12 billion dollars in coffee machines and coffee, or is it 9 billion? It's ridiculous. I want to find out about that, how do that, because we're in a similar space. And while we're competitors, I mean, we're hardly a competitor to these guys. And yeah, some of our machines might sell better in some keywords or whatnot, but like, I want to find out who the hell are the Nespresso guys. And then of course, funny enough, a lot of the top guys I've already met with, man. Jabron Diaz, uh, top Amazon seller, met with him, have him on speed dial. Mike Beckham, Simple Modern, amazing business guy. I talked to the guy where, you know what I mean? Like, I'm already talking to some of the top e-commerce people that I know. So it's not like at this point, it's here at a really, really high level at that point, right? Jeff Bezos, Nespresso guys. Yeah. Now, interestingly, I asked that question to everyone who comes on the show and your name came up from a previous guest, Ben Leonard, who is a good friend of mine. Oh, nice. 
So I just wanted to mention that it was him that actually mentioned your name. And then I was like, oh, I know that guy. He's a customer of ours. <laughs> I'm going to ask him to come on the show. <laughs> so that's how this all came to play. Oh, hell yeah, man. Let's do it. I love that. I love that. Okay, good. Well, cool. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Aaron. It was great to pick your brain. I think we've got some really good golden nuggets there, as they say. Hopefully the audience agree. Anyone who wants to get in touch with you regarding the exit program, I think you gave the link to that. Do you want to just recap that? Yep. So first you can find me up on LinkedIn, on X, on Facebook, anywhere, you know, anywhere social media, find me. I'm there. Aaron Cordova's, you know, my full name, pretty much I have that handle everywhere. But if you want to sell your company, AaronCordova's.com slash exit. If you want to invest, if you're an accredited investor, this is not an offer, but if you want to invest with us, AaronCordova's.com slash invest. And then if you want to learn more about House on Amazon, brand new seller, AaronCordova's.com slash start. I'm building out a much more comprehensive course, but if you do this mini course that I have now, you'll be on that list. We're starting a new brand from zero and it's been exciting. So that's all the stuff that I got right now. Yeah. And then seller samurai. I think you said that as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Samurai seller. Of course. Yeah. If you want to optimize your ads, if you want ad management, if you want to check your profitability, not in your PL level, but like on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey, how was it yesterday? How was it seven months? How was it by skew? What's your gross margin by skew? Your net margin by skew? Your ROI? your tacos, your ad day costs, oh, and that, the SKU level, parents, all that kind of stuff. Crazy data available, samuraiseller.com. Yes, sorry, I forgot about that. Thank you for looking out for me. No problem at all. No, well, thank you very much for your time today, Aaron. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I look forward to when this episode comes out, seeing the feedback from all the audience. Awesome, brother. Thanks for having me, Daniel. The e-commerce profitability show is brought to you by Link My Books. To find out more about Link My Books and how to accurately automate your e-commerce bookkeeping to ensure profitable growth, visit linkmybooks.com and then make sure to search for e-commerce profitability in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Link My Books, thanks for listening.